Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Watchdogs. All right, and welcome to another episode of the North American Waterfowler podcast. My name is Elliot, and today I am joined by Bobby Hayes. He is the owner of Ducklander Calls. We had Bobby on the Duck Gun podcast several times, but it's been a little bit since I've talked to him. I have personally been a fan of Bobby, and this is one thing that actually I didn't put on the outline I'd like to talk to him about, is the first time I was exposed to him was through his YouTube videos um, for Ducklander TV and seeing as though Bobby kind of lives in my same area I couldn't recognize the places that he was hunting but I knew it was in my area they hunted their style was very similar to mine and I just absolutely fell in love with those episodes and so it's always an honor um, when I get to talk to Bobby so Bobby how are you doing today buddy I'm doing good man just engraving calls thanks for having me on yeah what's going on um, with the business and the call making call game what's going on with that lately uh this is prime time call making season so rona has changed changed call making for me i don't know about everybody else um but so used to make calls kind of over the entire season until you get to hunting season and now during rona it became hard to get material the material wait became long so now i mostly make one or two large batches of calls a year uh so that happens this time this time of year so the spring is kind of marketing and then up to about now and then i make calls pretty solid till august and then you have trade shows that we're back into hunting season or you could also call that content season so are you do you make the same amount of calls you just put in more hours how does that work with your schedule as far as doing batches of calls instead of throughout the whole year well websites are incredible now so i don't know i use shopify shopify is amazing so everything mm -hmm. in shopify is skewed 
model numbered so you can run a report. I generate how many of every SKU that I sell in every color. And then I do that. And then however much growth I think we're going to have, I multiply that. And that's how many I make. So if I, if I sell 200 and some of a, this color, this SKU and this color, I sell 200 and say 20 of them. I add 10 or 20% and I make that many for the year. Oh, so you're just more yeah. efficient basically now than, very, than you were before. Yeah, very, very much. Yeah. Oh, that's so, fantastic. And then, so like right now, well, I don't know, there's probably seven or 800 calls I'm working on right now. The, a bunch of those will go to Rogers. So they need to be up there. They need to be up there beginning of July. It's waterfowl weekends and beginning of August. So that's when they want their order a little bit right. more then. Yeah. yeah. And Rogers, for those of you that don't know, is in it's in Liberty, right? Yep. Liberty, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And Bobby and I were both out there last year. So if you are in the area and you want to come to the Waterfowl Weekend, Bobby and I will both be out there. So come on out and check that. That's an awesome event. Uh, it's the only one I go uh-huh. to. It's, it, it's awesome. That is one of the last large waterfowl shows. Why, why do you think that is? The internet killed a lot of it, of course, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, our hunter numbers are down, so that doesn't help. Um, I think probably the, the biggest reason shows have died it's just everybody has all the information they need without going to a show. So when I was 18, if I wanted to see a product, I had to go to a store and I had to go to the, if the vendor was at the store, then I could actually see and talk about the product. I would have probably been merciless at DMing people building products when I was 18, if I could right. have done that. Right. Yeah. And you, you can just do that now. So. When I first started doing trade shows, you would talk to people and they were seeing your product for the first time. Now, granted, I think next year is my 20 year mark. But when you go to trade shows, the customers already know everything about the product. Mm -hmm. Like if they come and buy it, they already know they want it. They might want to touch it, but they already know. Or they've turned into, hey, I already have this. This is what I've ordered. They're just saying hi. Yeah. So now there's been kind of a bump in trade shows since since this rona deal yeah since everybody got stuck inside trade shows have gone crazy like rogers is bigger than it's ever been yeah i'm surprised people don't want to go just because i know i'm i remember i saw jim ronquist at cabela's one time uh some type of weekend they had and this was way back um and that was so cool for me at the time just to i didn't even i didn't even know there was an event there and i showed up and i was like i walked by him and i was like oh i know that guy and so i'm i'm surprised that more people don't go just for that personal aspect so so this is getting a little philosophical but the hunting industry itself has changed how we present people in the hunting industry so the cabela's shows used to be a huge deal they had waterfowl weekends mm-hmm and that was an Avery and a uh, final approach show. Hmm. That's who sponsored that show. That was the two titles. And those were kind of the two big decoy brands, but they also built all those accessories. So Avery would have a team waterfowl and they would do presentations and they would do seminars and then they would work that show and final approach would do the same thing. So it kind of, it kind of verified to the waterfowl community, like, Hey, all these people are, are trustworthy to listen to so it, it made consumers go to those events to see them mm-hmm. and now nobody really does anything like that anymore so it's just kind of whatever hmm. yeah everybody self-promotes now right right yeah, yeah. different deal 
like with Avery, you didn't know who Mr. Avery was. Avery was Fred Zink. It was all the guys that represented Avery. That was Avery. Well, and I'm so excited later on, we're going to talk about social media and your thoughts about it. One thing that, and by the way, Bobby's got, has started a podcast. Um, it's just the official title is just Ducklander podcast, right? Just a Ducklander podcast. Yeah. And I highly suggest you guys to check it out. You have a different way of thinking about things that's refreshing to me. And, um, I cannot wait until we talk about social media. I love the way you break things down mentally, but the, the cool thing is you're hard. It's hard to predict what you're going to think about stuff. <laughs> you know, like no, a lot of people, it's like, you kind of get an idea of their personality. Like they're probably going to think this, 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 like when I asked you off air, like politically, it's like, I had no idea. It's like, <laughs> right. Well, so I try to never be preachy, but I've gotten older and I really love waterfowl honey. And I don't always agree with stuff that I see, which is fine. I shouldn't agree with everything. That's fine. So I try to never be preachy, but I try to just put the idea in people's heads. Like, is this good Mm -hmm. or is this bad for what we do? Like, I try never to make the judgment on it. I try to just put the idea like, maybe this is good. Maybe this is bad. Right. Yeah. Just to get them to think about it. I don't think you can sustain a life in hunting if you don't think about it very deeply, right? If it's, if it's shallow in your head, I don't think you stay hunting. I think you've got to get attached to, or you're just one of those bloodthirsty guys. Cause there are a certain number of guys that all they want to do is, I think it's a small percentage, but I've run into a few of them. It's like, it doesn't matter what it is. If it looks at them and breathes and it's animal, they want to kill it. It's just like, you could even go, you could even go two different ways with that. Do they want to kill it just for the sake of killing it? Or do they just really love the aspect of hunting and they don't care what they're hunting? I've met a few guys. They just want to kill. I can think of, yeah. I can think of two examples of guys. That just, they just want to kill whatever, but I don't know. Maybe it's deeper than but I don't think those, too. but I don't think those guys stay hunting. I don't yeah. think you can. Yeah. yeah. Um, you almost can't be good at this if you don't think about it deep. And one of the side effects of thinking about something like that. The more you know about it, it naturally builds respect for it. Like you can't respect things you don't know. If you don't know about it, you can't respect it. So right. just from learning how to hunt something, it kind of just inherently builds a respect. Yeah. I think that's how guys transition. Mm. So long, I try to put those thoughts in people's heads. And mm. I don't know if that's right or that's wrong. A lot of times I look at stuff and I'm like, I might be going about this all wrong. Right. So this kind of ties in nicely to this. I ask people this sometimes. What percent, waterfowlers, what percentage of the day of your thoughts do you think are duck hunting thoughts or waterfowl hunting? Like how much in a given day do you talk, do you think about it? Well, I do this for a living. So this is all of my day for the most part. But like I can tell you, so my my six-year-old had a softball game last night and I live out of town and you go three miles up to town to play softball. I can't drive past our ditches without memorizing where my cord grass is <laughs> for this fall. Yeah. <laughs> so, and who has planted what crop, how mm. the crop looks. I, every minute I travel, like I ran out of coffee this morning. I had to run up to Casey's and grab coffee. Mm. And I checked all my cord grass on the way in the ditches. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. I, you got to keep watching because I don't know what the county is going to mow. 
So yeah. I keep a huge tally of blind code. Yeah, so it's all the time. Is it ever overwhelming to you? Like you, you want to be able to turn it off times and you can't? I wish I could write and speak better so I could better express the ideas that I had. So I wouldn't say it ever wears me out, but I will go to, to type something and I can't get it out. And that is frustrating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I so behind the scenes, I, I, I make friends or talk to people that are better at that than me. And I try to encourage them to, to speak on it. Right. Like my, I wish I could take Jordan Peterson duck hunt. Yeah. <laughs> right. He would be the greatest advocate in the world. For yeah. You know, whose posts on Instagram that I really enjoy that are pretty wordy is Phil Conkey's. Have you ever met Phil? I have not. I, I follow him, which yeah. to be, to be fair, I follow almost no one or get on almost no one's pages on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, on Facebook, I am in no groups. I'm in nothing. Mm. Like I have, I think I have 5,000 friends on there right maxed I it out I, I, yeah i try to keep it maxed out for promotional uh, reasons no so they can quit sending me friend requests. <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm but talking I, about i i thought you're gonna go left and you went right no, no i have five people that actually show up on my feed on facebook <laughs> oh my gosh that is too funny uh, I, I did the, with my, see, I went a different route. I, people started asking me and they were obviously waterfowlers because of my YouTube channel and the podcast and stuff. And I thought this would be a nice promotional tool. And all I did is filled my feed with garbage that I don't want to. And all the people I actually care about seeing their stuff, I, I never see it because it's that's so why I got rid of, that's why I got rid of it all. I didn't see anything that I wanted to see. It's right. just a mess right now. So why do why are you not interested in let's say the Kansas Waterfowler Group or those types of things? Why does that have no interest for you? It's a lot of arguing. Yes. If I was belittling, just guy, it's a lot of belittling and arguing. Yes, it's not good arguing. Right. It's just arguing. So I don't see a point to it. Like right. when I see it, it looks like a lot of arguing. That if doesn't matter what facts you put out it wouldn't change the argument right yeah if it was a debate i might have interest in it but it's not really a debate right um it's a lot of that it's a lot of on the the waterfowl pages it's a lot of territory dispute yeah um i just as a brand i don't know what it would do for me for being on there right I think that's a fair assessment. I, it's to the point with a lot of them that I won't even post questions that I have just because you just get ridiculed. It's just so silly. I'm on my, are you a dog guy by the way? Okay. Um, so my, I'm a big dog guy and, uh, my dog got hurt. And my question just simply was, how long do you think that this is going to take this injury is going to take to heal? And do you think I'll be able to take her to the hunt test in a week? And there was like five people upset with me about that. Why do you think, do you have any guesses as to why you think they might've been upset about that post? I see. I came from a family of roughnecks. My family drills holes in the ground for a living. They're old farm boys. They're construction guys. Nobody's sensitive. So no, I don't understand this ultra sensitive. No, I couldn't imagine. why. Right, let me tell you what it was. 
It was because in my post, I didn't show, I didn't make any remarks about the sensitivity of caring for my dog. It was, it was literally just, Hey, my dog's hurt. What do you guys think? How long do you think the injury will take? And will I be able to hunt tester? If I had put at the beginning, Oh, I'm so worried about my dog. My dog comes first. I want to, then it would have been fine, but I didn't front load it with that. I actually love my dog. So that's what I, that's what people were upset about. See, I wouldn't care if you love your dog. It's your dog. Right. You do with your dog. Or assume that I don't just because I ask a factual nuts and bolts question. Well, that seems like a legitimate question to me. Now, I would, I would assume with that post, you have not experienced this before. Right. Correct. Or you wouldn't be asking that question. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not that familiar with dog injuries. So when I read it, I'm like, hey, new dog owner has no idea how long it takes to heal. Right. I couldn't yeah, believe it. It's a legitimate question. Even, in fact, I had a guy message me. He's like, I am so sorry. You know, these guys get, but this is exactly the reason why you said you don't get into that garbage. It's just, a, it's just I not just even worth it. It's stay just out of it. Yeah. So, so we're going so way, just, out, way outside the outline, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> why, why are you not a dog guy? I'm surprised by that. Me and dogs just do not jive together. I, I do not have a knack. Like, I know how to handle a dog. I've had right. dogs. Just, we don't. I cannot. I think I worry about the dog too much. Because, hmm. like, my buddies with dogs, the dog's running all over. And I'm like, well, it's in the road for a minute. I, it just. <laughs> An extra distraction. You don't I can't concentrate on what I'm doing. Right. And I can't handle it. Yeah. yeah. Do you normally yeah. have dogs in your groups? Or you normally don't? Yeah. So I know I personally don't want to have to go out, get up every time I shoot. I mean, I've done a lot of solo hunting in my life and a lot of two-man hunting. Most of my hunting has been really small, intimate groups. And and just selfishly, I don't want to have to get up every time. That is very nice on a pond, especially if one cattle have been in. So I've no doubt about that. Now, I, I also – so anything I do with hunting, I look at as it's got to have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, like if, if anybody will look into what I do much or you, like, I'm not sponsored by anybody, right? I don't want tied down to use something. Like mm-hmm. I do, I do something with a few people, but mostly that's because of my relationship with the people more mm-hmm. than it is what they make. Right. Right. Um, now if they made crap, I wouldn't do it. I would just be their friend. Mm-hmm. But so to me, the dog is a tool and you don't use the tool every day but i'm not a dog guy like i don't like a dog in a dry field i don't really have a need for the dog in a dry field the retrieving is easy and just a distraction else i got you just don't want yeah, something else i got yeah something else especially if i'm in a field with the height kind of sucks and we're in layout blinds i don't want the dog to hide. i don't want to deal with hiding the dog i don't mm-hmm. think the benefit overwhelms takes over right yeah so, and you don't see the I'm not value of like the bond, the social bond. Oh, no, no, I totally get guys do that. Like, I completely understand that. It's just not me. Right. Yeah. So now what I will do, my buddies that have dogs, I have no problem contributing to the dog fund. Hmm. Like when the dog hut wears out, I'll buy you one. Yeah, I got no problem with that. Or if the dog needs something, I'll be happy to chip in on what that dog needs if it's retrieving my purse. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then that's what, how I've always treated. What are your? I'm going to start predicting in my head how you're going to answer these and see, answer these and see how well I do. Um, what is your thought? I have and, I, and don't worry about hurting my feelings during this about anything. All I want is your 
true thoughts. So whether it's filming on public or dog stuff, I it's not going to hurt my feelings. So I have gotten into, which I, I'm surprised by this, but I've gotten into the dog hunt test game. And, and the reason I did it is because I had a partnership with Flatlander Kennels. And I don't know if you know who Chris Jobman is. He's one of the premier dog trainers in North America. No, I don't know many dog guys. Right. And uh, he gave me this dog as a promotional deal. But one of his statements were, you know, what if basically you do such a crap job with this dog? It makes me look bad. And so that put a that lit a fire under me. It's like I I cannot let that happen. So I got into hardcore training like I never had before. And I was like, you know what? I want to take this dog to hunt test because I want to measure myself. I want to prove to myself and to Chris Jaman that I have done right by this animal and for him and i thought well i'll get into it i'll get my hunting retriever champion uh chip title and hrc and i'll be done with it and i got into it bobby and i absolutely fell in love with the whole thing and i didn't, oh, see, no, it, didn't like, see it coming i completely understand and i've i've had many of them that were wonderful dogs i it's almost to me like trying to film a duck hunt Mm -hmm. without having a producer there like if i have to mess with the duck hunt and the camera mm -hmm. it's too much you, you could, i can only do one well right or i'm doing both of them half ass right so i will say this the really good dogs that i've hunted over i hunted over one in oklahoma uh, it was some girl uh she had the same last name as i do uh lauren Lauren, I think her name was. But anyway, her dog was phenomenal. But she ran the dog and didn't hunt. The dog was impeccable. Right. But she was really into the dog. Like, she was getting more out of that than she was shooting the bird. Right. So I completely understand that. So I think if I was a dog guy, I would end up handling the dog more than I would I would, than hunting. I would yeah. rather handle the dog the best I could. So you don't yeah. have any negative opinions really of the hunt test world? <clears throat> no. I don't, I don't know it enough to have an opinion. Right. Because some people I find back to how people are so sensitive. Some people are really feel like that that whole aspect is they look down on it. Um, there's a certain portion of hunters that really look down on it. Man, <laughs> I would say this just like I say about the hunting. <laughs> I, I would never judge somebody's morals on on hunting. Mm -hmm. You do you. If it's legal and it makes you happy, then, man, I, I don't know what it hurts. Right. Uh, because we're getting into feelings once we get into that. So I don't Absolutely. know what the field test could bother anybody. I. Well, because you do things like you don't let dogs run the bank. That's a that's a stickler for some people. You make them go straight line instead of running the bank. And on a pond, sometimes the quickest route is go around the bank. And so, see, I would say I'm a meat hunter. So if your dog runs the bank and brings the bird back quicker <clears> to me, I think that's fantastic. But I completely get if a guy has put hours and hours and hours into training, that dog better take a line. Right. And that's what I've learned. That's one aspect of it I didn't like at the start was making the dog. My, my dog is extremely fast, high-powered dog. And so I'm like, well, I don't want to do this. I want to do this. But as I've gotten her more advanced and on really long marks, if they don't take the straight line, I'm like a 200-yard, they're not going to find it. That's right. It's like so there's a utility, right? <laughs> right. Which I didn't understand until because I mean, I'm my dog, my my previous dogs have never done 200 yard marks. There's no there's no reason for it. I mean, we shoot them in tight, and we, it it just. But now I see the I see the reasoning. 
No, no, there's a utility in it. It's not. Yeah, like I can tell you that uh, that girl's dog I hunted over. We hunted lessers that week, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that dog, dead straight line. Yeah, that's the first dog I've ever hunted over. <laughs> that I think it was quicker for the dog to pick up the birds than the people in the drive feed. Mm-hmm. But there was no uh, multiple commands. She gave it a command, it did its thing. Like it right. healed, it sat, it marked, and out it went. Right. There was no lining it up for, you know, 15 seconds, then rescinding, and then yeah. passed. It just went. It was it was pretty impressive. Man, it takes a lot of hours to get a dog to that point. A but lot of hours. Yeah. Right. But if so, you love the dog and you love the work, it's it's a hobby. I, it's not like, oh, I got to do this. It's just, it's like, you know, and being yeah. able to handle, like this dog just handles on um, um, lost. I'm blanking on the name. Blinds where it can't see the bird, you know I mean? It handles. I've never had a dog that will handle like this, where you can hand signals and directions. It's just so much fun. It's just I, it's so I think fun. some people have a knack for communicating with an animal. Mm-hmm. They pick up the little signs on what the animal's doing. So one of my best friends, he's a farmer that lives next door to me. He can tell you exactly what is wrong with the cow from looking at it for two seconds. Yep. He just has a knack for animals. And I just don't have that knack. Yeah. So a dog to me is is just hard. Yeah. Well, one more thing. We'll move to a different talk, topic. <clears throat> Excuse me. But my step-grandfather, he was born right around the turn of the century. His uncle was actually... General McClellan, maybe it was his great uncle, I think it was his uncle, in the Civil War, who was replaced by Ulysses Grant, which is really cool. But he was a farmer his whole life. And my dad said they went to a, a horse race racing track one time. And my grandpa, just from looking at the horses, could be like, that's the one to watch. Just he could see it. He had been around him his whole life. He could just see it. My, like I said, they, he just knows animals. Yeah. Yeah, And it's small signs like, you know, his thing is, well, you got to catch them before they're sick, like right when they start to get sick or then it's really hard. Yeah. And you'll go out and like, nope, that one needs a shot. And you'll get it looks like the rest. It's of crazy, them. isn't it? They're yeah, just too like, well, It's like a special down. A, yeah, his ears just down a little. <clears throat> yeah. But I mean, he looks at them every day. Right. But still, I just yeah. don't have that knack. So yeah. me and dogs have just never. Yeah. My yeah. favorite has always been my friend's dogs. That's that's a good resource to have for sure. All right, so give us your background in duck hunting. You and I talked about this a little bit before we were on air, um, but just give us you know how you got into hunting and how you evolved into what you are now. So most of my family hunted. My dad was a big quail and coon hunter. He had coon dogs. That was not my thing. I had a couple uncles that duck hunted a lot. And so I started, we quail hunted a lot together too and pheasant hunted, but they're who got me into waterfowl hunting. And they had a place in Uric, Missouri that was little private 40 acres they had bought. They actually, like I said, they, they drilled piers. They drilled, if you've ever been down to Truman Reservoir, they drilled mm-hmm. all the piers under the electrical lines in that lake when they were building the lake. <clears throat> So they moved from Mound City down to that area before the reservoir was built. So I started hunting down there. And then I am not a huge lover of club hunting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then I started going public hunting and I fell in love with hunting reservoirs. That's one of my favorite things. Like the actual main lake reservoirs or the backwaters? Main lake? Both. 
both depending on water level, time of the year, time of the day. Yeah. And then um, fell in love with duck hunting. Stopped, mostly stopped quail hunting. For a while, I thought I was going to become a big game guy. Joe, now, were you hunting over dogs I... with the quail hunting? Were you hunting over dogs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had a cousin that was a big Brittany guy. I had mm-hmm. another relative that was big on English setters. Um, always favored quail over pheasant. Pheasant were never my... I used to pheasant hunt a lot, but they were never my favorite. Why, why is that? Why would why did you have that preference? I liked... I liked quail hunting and creek bottoms. Like, that was my favorite. Inside the trees. Um... So I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to say this arrogantly. I have shot a shotgun a lot in my life. I used to shoot competition trap. I used to shoot Annie Oakley for money. So pheasant hunting, to me, the shooting is just not, it's just the bird sits there when it flushes. There's just not much to it. Mm-hmm. So the quail Other than recovering much... from the explosion out of the grass, <laughs> which is not insignificant. Right. No, no, it's, it, that's all good stuff, but uh, I really don't like the way pheasant tastes. Really? So that wasn't ever. Yeah, I love quail. So I liked the quail in the woods. It was a lot harder. I like to watch the dogs work the singles. You don't really get that on pheasant. Right. I, I always despised the 20 man march across the CRP with the blockers at the end. Right. That's a dangerous, can just, be a dangerous thing. Well, a, a covey flushing and singles flushing can be a dangerous thing. Yeah. As well. I saw someone so on the fe- When I pheasant hunted, it'd be three, maybe four guys walking draws. I like mm-hmm. that better. Then you actually got some dog work out of it. Right. Yeah, but just you know why I, I like quail better. One of the one of the main reasons, is, and I don't know why this bothers me so much, is that pheasants are introduced and not uh, native. It really bugs me. It's just not the same. I I could see that, and I just think quail are cool. Like yeah. I have them around my shop. I love listening to the quail when I walk out. You know, when the sun comes up in the morning, yeah, I get to hear the quail. I love it. I whistle at them all the time. Mm-hmm. Do they call back yeah, when I, you do that? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, I've got maybe. I'd say I got three coveys around the shop right now. Wow. So they talk to each other across my, my yard. Uh, and then they get out in my in my fescue and run around in the yard. And I watch them in the morning. Oh, that's cool. Answering emails and stuff. I think it's just a cooler bird. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And you could cook quail with a Bic lighter and it would taste good. They are delicious. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's how, and then... So then, uh, then I started making duck calls, and to be honest, that, that was in 04. That is the first time I started traveling to duck hunt or hunting with people that were not in my family. And had you transitioned fully into waterfowl at that? What year did you kind of transition from up the upland to waterfowl? I would say probably <clears throat> 99 or 2000. Okay. It was right after I got out of high school. Like I said, I was really thought I was hooked on big game for a while when I was probably 18. And then I kind of discovered I didn't get a lot out of shooting a deer. Um, some of that might be, I've never shot, I have, I've shot a lot of deer. I've never shot one with antlers. I've just never cared. Mm-hmm. I, if I was going to be a deer hunter, I think I would probably be a bow hunter. Mm-hmm. I can see the game in that. Right. Um, but shooting a deer with a rifle just never did anything for me, so I kind of stopped that. And then I pheasant hunted and duck hunted pretty hard for a couple years. And then I think almost everybody that I've ever talked to that really likes to waterfowl hunt, they've all got about the same story on what hooked them. And it's usually usually a mallard duck, and it usually has something to do with somebody else calling 
and the ducks responding to the sound and then mm -hmm. finishing. There's something, there's something magic the first time that happens, uh, especially if it's a lot of ducks at one time. Those little soldiers floating down and talking back, it does something. Uh, but that's what hooked me. But almost everybody I know can tell you almost the same story. I'm like, yeah, I was doing this, and then I jump shot, but then we did this. That was amazing. Right. Yeah. And then I got really infatuated with learning how to blow a call. And then, so I probably duck hunted six or seven years before I started making calls. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you had a mentor that you, that spent a lot of time with, right? With the duck calling? I wouldn't say I spent a lot of time. His name was Mike Keller. He made big guys best. But so my uncles duck hunted a lot. They were good duck hunters. They were not good with the duck call. They just, they had really good timing. But sounding like a duck, not too much. They didn't use good duck calls. But I had a buddy that took me up to Mike Keller's house, and that was the first time I'd ever seen an acrylic duck call or heard somebody that sounded amazing on a duck call. So he was getting kind of sick by the time I met him. He had a muscle disease. I can't remember what it was. But he was a great big guy. He'd get really weak. And anytime he would offer me time, I would go up, and he would teach me how to do something. Yeah. So... That was, I would say he gave me the base for learning how to blow a duck call. Like mm -hmm. He taught me uh, how to put air pressure into a call, how to cut a duck, how to cut a note off, um, that kind of stuff, how to blow a feed. Is that what got you into the idea of starting to make your own calls or were you already doing it at that point? No, no. Um, no, like I said, that's the first time I've ever seen an acrylic duck call. Okay. Uh, before that, I grew up on old little folk stuff calls, them little cedar tone boards. You'd carry six or seven of them because when they get wet, they quit working. So you'd carry them. Like we used to hang them over the barbecue grill to dry them out. We had a grill in the blind for heat, and you'd hang them above there. And you'd <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I used to make – there is so much equipment now that you can buy. It's unreal. So, like, when I was 20 – I would put bilge pumps on decoys to try to move water. I would make all, just make all kinds, because you couldn't buy anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I would make, a lot of the stuff I'd make, you could just buy it now. Mm -hmm. um, the first spinners we had, I had a buddy that made Really? Now that was that before they came out? <laughs> it was the year after they had come out. Okay. You couldn't buy them in town, because Rogers was always out of them, because I think, I think the first ones, I'd have to ask, Stevie or Shannon about this, but I think the first ones they carried, there was some local guys building them. And so they'd get a few in and they'd sell them out and they'd get a few in and they'd sell them out. Mm -hmm. So I had a buddy that just made them. So that was the first, first spinners I had were homemade. Uh, he would take an old G and H shell and I think he used a printer motor. I, yeah. yeah, It was made really nice, but uh, yeah. So then I don't know, probably in 2002, 2003, I started tinkering with duck holes just because um spinners do you so you were using spinner that's first year that they came out or the second year it's been the second year and what was your experience with uh how the ducks reacted to that they were ridiculous <clears throat> uh, that is an honest change that has gone on they used to we used to break the spinners from the ducks getting shot and landing on because they would just float, like, 
now you kind of need to think about where the spinner goes. Right. But when we first got them, you would just put them on each side of the spread at about 20 yards. So mm -hmm. both sides of the blind had a spinner and they would just float over them like they were waiting on them to land. Yeah. And like I said, a lot of times you'd shoot them and they'd hit your spinner. They'd knock a wing off because they weren't made very well. Yeah. Um, I used to have probably three trash cans full of those stupid little ever-ready flashlights that had the six-volt battery. Uh -huh. Because that's where you get, it was cheaper to buy the flashlight and the battery <laughs> than it was just to buy the lantern battery. And I think the lantern battery maybe lasted two days. Yeah. I missed out on those years. I, I, I was, um, let's see, what year? Well, that's like the mid-90s, right? Like 95, 6, I know about them. It had been 98 or 99. Okay. Now, I'm sure somebody is going to correct me and tell me the spinner came out way before that. I have no idea. That's just yeah. when we had them in this part of the country. I, yeah. I, I think I guys got to remember, it used to take time for stuff to go everywhere. Right. Yeah, it would, it would take a while. I resisted them because I, I didn't want to spend the money. And I just didn't want to have to mess with something electronic. And so I didn't, I didn't get one until I was forced to, cause I was, um, on public land and it just hunt after hunt. I was around guys that was using them and I wasn't using them. Oh, yeah. And there were times where like, I should be killing birds right now, but you <laughs> yep. just couldn't, you couldn't compete. It's like, I've got to get one cause you just couldn't compete on public without one at that. So, time. so the reason we got them is my <laughs> uncle's place. Uh, we had a neighbor. And normally, they did not shoot a lot of birds. It just was across the river. You could see each other hunt. I mean, it was a long ways away, but you could see each other. His name was Mike. I've known him for 25 years or better now uh, that owned the place. And they showed up one day with a spinner, and we didn't kill a duck for a few weeks. They would just go straight to that place. So that's right. why we ended up getting a spinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It became apparent. Yeah, you either get one or you don't shoot ducks. <laughs> yeah. And, but, so, you know, I do a lot of educational, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever I have somebody that's new to the sport, we're teaching them how to call. And a lot of that becomes how do we hunt, right? Like, so that's some of the point of my podcast is just like, hey, these are decoys. These are where to spend money, maybe not to where to spend money. Or if yeah. you got $100 by this and whatever. But I always tell them, if you're new to this and you're on public ground, your best bet is to buy a couple spinners. Right. You can, you can decide whether you hate them or, or not hate them or when to use them after you get better at this. But starting out, that's the first thing a new duck hunter should buy if he's on a public marsh. Now, I'm sure there are a pile of guys that hate me saying that. Yeah. But I don't care. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you, and I just remembered this. My dad's first hunt with a spinner, he blew the head off the spinner. <laughs> Literally, he shot the head off on the first time. Because it was doing that same thing. It was hovering, hovering. Right. And ducks will still hover right over them. I'm I'm a spinner guy. I'm a spinner guy. I always start with a spinner and I'll try to take it away. But I mean, I consistently see birds hovering over the spinner. And I, I'm not lying, Bobby. I bet you that I've tried to pull the spinner on a poor hunt 50 times. And maybe, maybe only once or twice I've been like, oh, it kind of seems better. I never get that late season. Like I pull it and all of a sudden things dramatically change and everyone's preaching, you know, they don't like it late season. I like seeing, I just cannot, I would love not to use a spinner, but I just can't my, see the my, value of it. My rule on this, if I was public hunting, I would have a spinner out every day. So typically I think if they're not finishing, they see you. Right. That's yeah. What's going on. Right. 
Yeah. Um, especially as it gets later in the year, they're more mm-hmm. weird. But yeah. I, they see you. It's not the spinner. If you took you out of the equation, I, they would land by the spinner. Yeah. In my opinion. But I agree. now, if I'm hunting, if I'm hunting ponds, if it's an X, I usually do not use the spinner. If it's a soft X, I'll use a spinner. And if it's just a pond where I'm just going to set up, and I know there's a bunch of birds coming over, I'll put a couple spinners out. Mm-hmm. But if it's a pond and it's an X, I try to just not get in the way. Right. Like at the same token, I wouldn't put 20 dozen decoys out in the water on that pond. I would think it would be in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So So if it's, it's so the I X, think, you minimize what you're doing because they're already yeah. doing it there. So you just need to keep yourself hidden yeah basically you just need to pretend like there's not a hunter there right yeah so i think the spinner is just off in that situation do you see value in late season getting ducks attention with the spinner and turning it off as they approach because i know that's a lot another theory about not on an x yeah not on an x um i do think guys should think about it more as an attractant than a finishing tool. Mm -hmm. Even when you're using it as a finishing tool. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. How, Um, if so, if you think of it more as an attractant than a finishing tool, how is that going to affect your, what you're doing? It's not always where you want to shoot the duck. So don't necessarily put it in the kill hole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I would, I would say it's similar to this. If if a duck or a goose wants to be where you're at and they come down, but say they land 100 yards away, there's two mm-hmm. reasons for that. They either seen you and they're just far enough away, you're not bothering them, or you're just like you're in the wrong spot. That could be mm-hmm. the wind or whatever. They just like that spot. You can do the same thing with a spinner. It doesn't have to be where they want to be for it to still work for attracting them or right. not bothering them. Yeah. So do you think it's a negative sometimes then to have it in the kill hole? Yeah, but I usually look at it as a negative because it's in the way. I don't like it just stuck up in the way. Mm-hmm. Now, when we first started using them, it couldn't be in the way because they would try to land on it. Right. But now... So this is my theory, and I get pretty pretty nerdy on some of this stuff. I probably way overthink it. So the water is very reflective. So if it's sunny out, I don't think the reflection looks off from the wing to the spinner, to the water, because it's reflecting that splash, right? Mm-hmm. But I think when it's cloudy out, the, the, there's two strobes going on. Yeah. So a lot of times, like if it's cloudy, I don't necessarily want the spinner over clean water. I might want it over vegetation. Hmm. I've never thought, I've never heard of that. Because now I'm taking, I'm taking that secondary flash that's odd, or I want it really close to the water. So the, the two flashes are the same. It's unison. Now does wind, does the wind play into that decision? No. Okay. No, mostly sunlight. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Cause like in the morning, they're never scared of a spinner. They're not scared of a lot in the morning, right? Like everybody's right. a hero at, at, at dawn. Yeah, right. Right? The hide, everything's great. Yeah. But they're never spooked off a spinner in the dark. So, but a lot of times you get that moment where the spinner's lit up, but the water's not. Mm-hmm. So the flash is different. 
Yeah. And then they start bumping off of the situation. But then the sun comes up and everybody's like, oh, they can see the decoys. Now I think the flashes are the same now. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so yeah, you can, you can move it over to vegetation. So like on cloudy days, I don't necessarily like it in the open water. Or uh, I want the spinner floating. I don't want it on a pole. Because of the yeah. difference of the reflection of it on the water yeah. versus the wings. Yeah, I think so. Now, that is that. all my opinion, and that could be all bullshit. Well, hey, if you're saying that, if you're making that statement, then you're you're fully evaluating what you think. I think one problem that pe- most people have, I'm sure that I do this too, not just in the waterfowl world. It's like what, something happens one time, and you see it, and now that's the dead fast rule for the rest of your life. No, no, I'm not. It's like I move and play and mess with stuff all the time. That's how it is. And in like spinners don't work late season. Geese won't land on spinners. I've had geese on the Kansas River plenty of times land on a spinner. Oh, yeah. But it's like you get these like rules and people just like steadfast. All right. This happened to me one time. And that's just the rule. That's just how it is. It's like, what's your sample size on that? How do you know that that's the variable? In that situation, there's thousands, there's hundreds of variables. How do you know that that's it? And you apply that to your hunting for the rest of your life. Well, I would say this of all the things that you could worry about during a hunt, the spinner would not be on the top of my list. Right. So break it down. If things aren't working right, let's let's say you're, you're set up and you're like, man, for some reason, these birds are coming, looking interested, but we're not getting them to finish. What's your order progression of handling that problem? If there's wind, your hide sucks. Mm-hmm. that's the number one thing to fix um it could be you you either you don't have enough grass you're just not hidden enough or you've got a pile of grass and you just look out of place like i think that's 99 percent of the time where somebody's sticking their head out of the blind uh so that's my number one before i touch a decoy is how well am i hidden um if there is no wind it's everything that day. Everything is wrong that day when there's no wind. So there isn't any one thing that's going to fix any of it. Mm-hmm. If there is no wind, that's the death of all waterfowl hunts is no wind. But so I would go my hide. And if I was hunting ducks, then I would go to. Can they go where they want to go? Cause like I would say the number one thing that waterfowlers do that wrecks their hunt is they try to shoot them where they want to shoot them and not where they want to be. Uh, whether it's a pond on a marsh and they can be really finicky over where they want to be mm-hmm. and you can just be in the way. Uh, like one of the skills on hunting a pond is just looking at it and going, no, they want to be right there, even though that doesn't look exactly right with the wind. You're like, yeah, but that's the spot because they're going to tuck in behind this cut bank and they're, that's the spot. So that would be, that would be number one and number two before I moved to spinner. I just so how much do you, so ch- how much tinkering do you do with the decoys then and not wholesale like decoy changes, but just tinkering within the spread? Man, I'll be honest. I don't move a decoy around that much, hmm. but to preface, I've done this a lot. Um, so I try to be pretty strategic with every one that I put out. Like I don't throw any of them out haphazardly. Mm-hmm. So now honkers are a little more particular, right? Like a honker's really big. So when honkers come in, they have to spread apart from each other before they can land. 
this way and they have to go this way because they're six foot wings so it's pretty hard if they don't have enough space they just can't get in your spread so honkers i will try to make it whatever i think is appropriate for them to get in and then you may have to open it up because they're too crowded so honkers all honker decoys all move around quite a bit but it usually just involves giving them more room right and i don't have my knowledge on geese is very very i'm a i'm just a duck guy and i'm a public land duck guy is what i am so as far as geese i have almost nothing to offer (laughs) so so on public land ducks i've always been a minimalist on Mm -hmm. equipment um like i shot when when i hunted public i'd be honest i don't hunt public anymore but we can get into that when we go to the other stuff um most of my spread would have been six ducks in a spinner eight Mm -hmm. ducks in a spinner like i rarely took out a big decoy spread on public ground like i think it's just way more efficient to know the marsh or the lake than it is to drag a bunch now would that be true on on the big reservoirs too no that's where you start changing things because it's just so big and you're in a boat right so now i would say six to eight dozen when i was in the boat like an 18 foot boat with a blind right Right. you know six to eight dozen yeah it's a pretty good spread but you're just really big so smaller water marshes oh yeah right like i don't know yeah like my ideal spread at the bottoms i would throw a dozen a dozen ducks in the boat and a spinner that would be what i would do at the bottom so you don't see any um gain of three dozen versus one no not really um, if you told me, hey, we're just going to go out and the ducks are flying by this spot, then yeah, we probably need some decoys. But if you would look at me and go, oh no, there was 200 ducks in this little open water spot, you you don't need a lot, in right. my opinion. Um, I also believe in my duck call more than I believe in those decoys a lot of times. So, so I used to, when I had it on public, I would look for public ground, that had grain fields that bordered the marsh and a tree line. And I shot a pile of ducks standing in the tree line with a couple spinners in the dry field going to the marsh that were not dry feeding. I used to do that all the time. I, I'm really interested because you mentioned this to me in text that you don't have public anymore. So give me your background. I can't, I am absolutely in love with public land. Even if I had, the best lease. There's just something so thrilling about finding the ducks, getting there, having this perfect hunt, and be like, "I found them. I beat everyone to them." the The rat race of it to me is just thrilling. Talk to me about your progression from public to private. I love hunting on public ground. I grew up doing it, but I'll be honest. I used to film a lot on public ground, but this was before. This was before YouTube was YouTube. Yeah, it's current form right which started 2015 i did yeah it might have been earlier than that it might have been 2012 or 13 i'd have to look on youtube it's yeah that's that channel's got to be 10 years old yours it's 11 you were doing it 11 years ago i don't think anyone else was self-filming on youtube before i started and uh josh from outdoor limits started in 2015 i couldn't find anyone before that i mean you had the grind you had your stuff stuff like that but I couldn't, I couldn't find anyone that was, I mean, you had like kill montages or rock music, 
Um, but as far as like, because basically what Not you were doing series up, right? Yours was high production, but it was still basically self filming on public. Is how it felt. Um, your your show. I had a camera guy. Yeah, because like we but were it felt using... intimate. It felt it wasn't yeah. like, and I'm not knocking the grind, but it wasn't like it just felt more YouTube. Well, that's because more... we weren't. That's because we weren't good at it. <laughs> I, I just I would disagree. I fell in love with that show. I would disagree. But anyway, I don't. I think that you were kind, other than from before 2015. You're the only one that was kind of doing that style that I could ever remember. I didn't know many people doing it. So so. But what ended up happening, I would say, I went to private hunting probably six or seven years ago. Um, I felt guilty over ruining somebody's hunt. Possibly. <laughs> I don't know if I did. But I started having a lot of customers say, are you here? Are you here? And I don't know. I'm not saying I influenced anything or didn't. I have no idea. But I didn't like the possibility of ruining somebody's hunt that gets a Saturn. Like the customers were asking you where you were hunting, you mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to compete with somebody that buys calls from me hmm. on a public marsh. I, I don't know the appropriate way to handle that. If you're, if you're good at hunting, you're going to be so, okay. So I'm trying not to say this arrogantly because it's not me. The last time I was at Four Rivers Refuge, mm -hmm. we had a phenomenal day. Now I've grown up on that place. I started hunting the walking out there the year they opened it in 97. I know every hole on that refuge mm -hmm. on all the, the whole thing. So I went to the back. There's a hole back there. It always has millet in it. It gets hunted very little. We had a spin over us that morning that was insane for mm -hmm. two hours. When I got out, I had so many people at the boat ramp telling me, oh, my God, that was so many ducks. And half of them I'd sold ducks to. I would rather one of them were in the hole than me. I can go find another place to hunt. Um, and then as I've gotten older, we definitely have a hunter number problem. Now there's some guys arguing right now that there should be less. I don't know if you've been following that. Absolutely. Um, okay. But I'm not, I don't know if more or less is right, but I want more waterfowlers that are good at this than that aren't good at this. Mm-hmm. I think that counteracts a lot of the social media problem. So I want them to have the best chance they can when they get out on Saturday to go kill a bird. I don't want to interfere with that. I have time to go do this another way. So that's, so I just kind of took myself out of it. That's right. That's interesting. Um, we, we're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, we're going to push farther in with Bobby about public land hunting, so we'll be back in just a moment. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I thank you for coming back with us. Um, Bobby was just talking about his philosophy on on public. And I'm assuming you've been talking a lot about ponds. I, I'm assuming that you moved from the public and you're now f- field and pond hunter. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So so the other the other issue with this public thing, and I'm not trying to say this as in an arrogant man at all. It's not but, coming off like that. It's really hard. You cannot have a waterfowl business. I don't care if it's duck, if it's duck calls or decoys, or, it doesn't matter. It has to be promoted. I don't know if I should have a camera on public ground. That's going to affect somebody. Now, 10 years ago, probably not. I don't know how many followers I had on social. I'm probably at 60 or 70,000 people. I don't think I should be showing people where the, where, what the hunting is like on public marshes. I don't think that's good. And I can't do it without that part. Like that's just a part of my business. So I can't, I can't take those two things and separate them. The camera has to go with me, whether it's a photo or a video, like it's, it's part of what I do. I've made that choice. So that, that's the other reason that I, just I just don't do it. So I, I hunt ponds. I hunt grain field. It's all private. I, I have maybe set foot on a public marsh five times, maybe less in the last six seven years. And usually now that is without a camera, without anything. That's just usually a buddy wanted to go and he wanted. Mm-hmm. To go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's you know, no business conducted on on a public spot ever. Here's here's what a problem I would personally have with that decision. These our managers in Kansas are phenomenal individuals and they, they are so good at managing those areas. And those areas of Kansas are just spectacularly beautiful. You go from the bottoms to other places. I didn't want to mention my favorite ones, but they are, I, I can't, I can't take those places out of my life because of the experience of, of the absolute beauty that is involved in being in those places. And when I'm at a pond or, and I, and I, I've got some pond experience, not a ton or an ag field. It's not the same emotional, natural vibe feeling to me. You know, you got a man-made pond, you got a man-made ag field. I can't get the same I can't get the same emotional experience as I'm doing it. It doesn't change the game that much for me, especially as I've gotten older. Um, I do like hunting on them. Like you said, I like knowing like, yeah, I was the guy that day. I went out scouted. I called like I did the thing. Right. Right. Um, But you can kind of play that game on private as well. Not as much, but some. Um, Now, with all that said, I have a lake that I grew up on. And when it floods, it's phenomenal. If it does it, it does it about every 10 years. The next time it does it, I'll be out there doing everything on it. But 
everybody knows what's going on when it does. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you're not, it's so big too, that you're not taking anything. Well, I said, I could be way off on this. I may be way overthinking it. But at the same time, YouTube has influenced some policy in the last couple of years. But I don't know. But you could probably say that's because of what was put on it versus it just, it's on there. So, yeah. But I, well, I may be way overthinking the situation. Well, we're going to, I want to get into more in a little bit about filming on public. Um, I don't, I want to come back to that because I've, I've got, I started filming in 2015 and the only reason that I started doing this honest to God is because I wasn't remembering my hunts enough. I've I keep, I've had a spreadsheet that I've we've kept forever and it tracked all sorts of different numbers. I put notes in it, you know, shooting percentage, bird per hunt averages. I, it was now I've actually turned it into an app, which is, it's a really cool app that tracks it all. I don't know if I think you're a note caper. I think you're probably a pencil paper journaler. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I used um, to be, yeah right. everything well, started repeating so i quit doing it yeah after i got so much of it yeah well i'm i'm a numbers guy and i love looking back at different years and i'll go i'll go on my notes and i'll go hunt my hunt um the clear back whatever and it's like and try to remember them and i noticed that when i was going back through my old information is that i wasn't remembering what i wanted to remember and so that's why i started taking a a, a camera in the marsh that is the only reason and i i did First time on public, I put it on YouTube. I'm sure I probably had a little bit of thought of, I wonder who will watch us. But essentially, I was sending it to my dad, who's been my lifelong hunting partners. Me and my dad, until 2015, it was just me and my dad. It was just us two. And so um, people started watching it. I put on another one. More people start watching it. All of a sudden, I'm like, what in the hell is going on? People are actually responding to this. People are watching it. So at that point, before I had ever even thought about should what are the impacts of hunting on public? All of a sudden I've got, I'm getting all this positive feedback from it. People are watching it. I mean, that's, that's thrilling. Let's be honest. Uh, and so then I'm like, man, at about five that year, I'm like, I'm actually going to start making this stuff for other people. And so by the end of the year, it, I hadn't even hit like a thousand subscribers, but um, it was a thing. People were watching it. People are talking about it. I saw people referencing it on forums. And so um I just started going all in and then I was contacted by someone, I think the second year and it was a real long email about, Hey, here's some of the negatives of what I feel like you're doing. You're showing these boat ramps, you're showing that boat ramps, you're mentioning Kansas. And he was a really thoughtful email and that same thing that happened to me. Right. And, and that was the first time that I ever stopped and went, Oh, let me actually start thinking about what so that at that point I started really breaking it down in my mind what is the impact of what I'm doing going to have I stopped talking about Kansas I stopped showing any identifiable landmarks um and but it's in as a teacher I also started seeing this as well you know what because I'm I've been an elementary teacher I don't know if you know this I've been an elementary teacher for for 23 years and at that time I started seeing it as I might be able to turn this into something that allows me to be able to hunt more. If I can grow this thing and over time, I might be able to retire 10 years early and full-time hunt. So now I've got this issue of like, and I can still, I, I can still lay out a reason for you why I think that 
waterfowl public uh filming on waterfowl waterfowling you know what i'm trying to say is okay but I, i've got all these dynamics going and my goal is like i don't want to my passion of waterfowling is much greater now than my passion of teaching and that's what i want to be doing in my life and so it just completely exploded and so it's been kind of a I don't know. You can see the the path it's gone. Oh, no. I, I guess, like I said, there's a lot of these issues I go back and forth with. I'm like, well, it's bad on this hand, but it's good on this. Hand. So I could also counter that with, well, if I do that, it may get more people waterfowl hunting. Mm -hmm. That maybe outweighs the negative. And I could say that on a lot of the topics you sent me. Right. Right. But I'm going to I'm going to preface the, the filming on public land. I'm going to kind of combine this with just social media and YouTube. Okay. So I think the intent of how a guy does this outweighs anything. And I have, I have a good example of this. And, okay, so Foils is a buddy of mine, right? Mm -hmm. You know Foils and all yep. the controversy he yes. had. Foils used to let his dog break. And he would get hell for that, right? Right. But I can watch a guy on YouTube. He will specifically post a video on social of the dog breaking and getting shot over. And it gets thousands of comments. And then right. he puts it up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And that gets thousands of views, all negative. But it doesn't really matter because the algorithm doesn't know whether it's negative or positive. It just knows the comment, right? Yeah. Well, they know bef before they post that what's going to happen. Everybody knows what happens with that video. Mm-hmm. Foyles' intent was to hunt better. The other guy's intent on YouTube was to get more views. Right. That's what I don't like about it. Uh, yeah. That's the social media part. And I don't know how to play in that world. So I leave it. Yeah. I hunt on public. I control what I film. That's where everything gets great. That's where it's not that I hate that hunting is on YouTube. It's the intent. Like I feel very misrepresented as a waterfowler on YouTube. You personally feel misrepresented as a waterfowler? Yeah, water? because I see more of the other than I see just people hunting and wanting to share it. I see them wanting to post something to get the response because that's what drives it. But you said you feel misrepresented. Yes, I think Explain. I think if you would, I, well, because I didn't feel misrepresented from foils because everything he was doing. Oh, was you feel misrepresented hunted. as a waterfowler, not you as personally. A water, like no, I think our community okay. is misrepresented on that. But I didn't feel that way from Jeff, even though, yeah, a lot of guys disagree with how he's doing it. But he was doing it for hunting, mm -hmm. like whether the camera was there or not there. He was doing that exact thing. The guy that's a YouTuber that posts the dog breaking for all the likes is only doing that for YouTube. Right. I, I talk about this with guys and I have conversations with my close. Now, buddies. I don't believe you do that. Right. I'm not I'm not saying that. But no, that's I, I didn't what I see a lot of. You have you have two classes of YouTube waterfowl hunters. And maybe this includes all social media. Are you as a creator? Are you a YouTuber? Who waterfowl hunts or are you a waterfowler who youtube hunts because i can tell you that i i know of people 
um, that if you took away the YouTube, now they're hunting 25% as much, right? It's like right. YouTube is the deal. Waterfowl is what they're doing it where then there's other people and absolutely myself, I, I'm included in this. If you take away a camera, nothing's going to change about my waterfowl, except right. I'm not filming. That's the only thing that's going to change is I don't have a camera. I'm, I always pride myself and, and make sure mentally I am a waterfowl hunter and who, who films. And if there's days where I have to make a decision about the hunt, then it's always going to err on not getting the best shot. It's going to err on what's best for this hunt for, for killing ducks. So that's just my main, and I don't know how to play in that realm, especially as a brand. So I've just taken myself out of it. Now, I don't know if that's good or bad. See, I, think, I, can tell I you, think it's bad. I think it's bad. Most Bobby. of the industry has. Here's YouTube why I think it's bad. Especially. I think it's bad because we could probably both name some people who are high profile that don't do it the right way. And waterfowl hunting, when I grew up in high school, it was pheasant, quail, deer. People didn't really talk about duck hunting. Now, I was central Kansas, and at that time, that was world-class upland hunting. But it's like duck hunting wasn't a thing. Um, now you've got – maybe the numbers don't pack this up. It's my perception. But you got, you know, um, Duck Commander got people kind of into it, and then the YouTube gets people into it. So you've got an influx of people that are going with their friends that don't have the proper people around them to show them how it should be done right. So you've got these big channels that are showing them the wrong way to do it. And a lot of times when people contact me – and, and people that are like my friends, the messages I get is, thank God, someone who does it right, someone who shows how to do it. We cannot let this that type of social media presence be the whole voice. And if people like you stop filming, it's one less guy that does it right out there that, that can be a kind of a mentor role for people that don't know what they're doing. We have to have a counterbalance because there's some terrible, terrible ethics go on in fact i was i was talking to jason wagner uh manager cheyenne bottoms and he referenced a youtuber and the negative things he was doing on video out there we've got to have more of the people like you doing it when i when i was earlier and i said yeah youtube is definitely influenced policy i mean there you go no wake at the bottoms is because of youtube that's yeah. the main reason yeah i mean i know it was getting out of hand anyway and it may have but that's the main reason what what percentage of just a guess? What percentage of waterfowl hunters, especially the ones that are just entering it without minners, do you think frequently make a habit of shooting farther than what they should shoot? Low percent oh, or high percent? Oh, a high percent, a huge high percent. Yeah. And yeah. it that's just one example of people need to be watching videos i'm not going to use my as example my shot selection is super conservative i've never hunted with anyone that has a more conservative shot selection than than what i've got uh, even to the point of getting teased about it but uh it's like we need this content of people watching what you what you're doing and your philosophies on it it's just it's a it's a loss to not have you putting out content for for specifically for that reason well i appreciate that um i i could tell you from the industry, YouTube specifically is the elephant in the room and have what to do with it. That's that's why you don't see any industry guys on there. It, nobody knows how to do it. Nobody do knows nobody knows how to compete with the. So okay, 
I am going to call the stuff I don't like on YouTube childish. Mm -hmm. I don't know another word for it. That's the best word that I can I can come up with. Right. Running a motor through rafts of ducks for three hours. I, I don't know what other you call that. Right. To shoot a YouTube video. It's yeah. just childish, right? Yeah. To me. I, and most of the guys I know, we don't know how to compete with the childish and get views. Like, you can't overcome the negative algorithm on that. What I wish I could do is just tell everybody that doesn't like it, which I assume is most of the people, quit participating in it. Yeah. Like, you got to stop viewing it, commenting on it. You just got to stop. Like, shoot them a message and just say, yeah, this is terrible. Right. But you can't participate. Yeah. But because like one of the issues with YouTube is good content does not does not win out. I would because, agree. I say that because so I've got a buddy that shoots the best hunting video in the world. His mm-hmm. name is Donnie Benson. Right. No one makes a better hunting video than that man. He should be the biggest guy on YouTube. And he's not. He's don't get me wrong. Like he's very he does very well what's but his youtube channel sh- uh it's just probably donnie vincent okay yeah it's mostly big game but i mean nobody does a better production or tells a better story than than him and his guys um heartland waterfowl should be huge on youtube their production value is out of this world it's probably the, right. the highest quality film tv show but the quality of content doesn't necessarily win out no the childish seems to win out well i let me uh, the what what can absolutely win out is people's personal relationship with you. And that's been kind of from the start. That's been kind of my, my niche where when I first started, I had this crew of guys. We were always together. There was joking, there was playing and, and people form a pseudo relationship with you. And that can be really, really powerful. Um, now are you going to blow up a channel to a million subscribers? Probably not. But the people that get to know you personally, you are going to impact them deeply and you're going to have more influence over them than people are watching the the circus spectacle. Right. You're going to you're going to impact their behaviors at a deeper level, you know, than you put on a YouTube channel of someone just being an idiot. He's not going to you're going to look at it uh, because the rule is you, you don't care if you now this isn't my rule. But generally speaking, you don't care if you make people mad. You don't care if they hate you or love you, but you don't want them to be indifferent. And that's why you get that type of stuff. But the love aspect, the, the relationship that they can build with you personally, and that, that's why the production value doesn't really matter because YouTube is a different animal. People want to get to know you. And like I'll have people come up to me and they literally just, not all the time, but like if you go, if I go to Rogers, like at the, where people are there and, the, and they see Marina Marsh, they act like they know you. Cause that, cause that's how they feel. And that would be, that area would be your niche and you may not be getting the total views, but you're, you're underestimating the the people that are interacting with you. Like, like I did in 20, what, 12, when you put those on, when I see a guy hunting my style, then I, I, I've been honestly, embarrassingly a fanboy meeting you because of how much I felt like I knew you from those videos. Okay. So let me also go over, and this probably doesn't matter too anybody viewing this because this let me go over the back end of this as a brain uh, and this takes all the, the ethics and whether i like it or dislike it out right when i post a photo on instagram and i do a write-up that photo has got an roi itself 
right? A return on investment. Mm -hmm. And I can track that return. Like I know how much a photo is worth on, on Instagram or Facebook or a post or a story, right? And I can track that from sales. And I can take a month's worth of photos or whatever I want, and I can track that. Well, a photo's really cheap. Um, I take it takes me about two thousand photos a year to feed social media. So roughly, a a photo costs me. I buy a new camera body every twenty four months. That's what photos cost me, plus my time to edit and post, right? Mm-hmm. But I I try to take. I, I sell expensive duck calls. So the photos I put up, I, I make sure they're all as good as I can put up. Right. right. Like I never post a cell phone pic on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like there, there hasn't been a cell phone photo on my Instagram probably three years. Everything, even the stories all off the big camera. Right. I can't post low quality video on YouTube. It doesn't fit the brand. Mm. Right. As a brand, I can't do it. So for me to post on YouTube, it has to be in a, a production. I can't get the ROI off of you off the video back out of YouTube because of the the nature of of the beast. So if if I shoot if I shoot a a five minute video, that's going to be about six grand. By the time I have the cameras come in and and the edits done, or more, and I can't put forty of those up in a year. I don't make enough duck calls to do that. I'm gonna have to spend some days thinking about that. So, as um, a brand, that's my issue. Yeah, yeah, that's the one reason why you don't see a lot of videos from me on Instagram production quality because it's still just a post, whether it's a photo or a video. Yeah. So I do like the podcast. Yeah. Cause I can throw that up on YouTube, but even that there's still production in that. Yeah. But it lives a long time. My first, my first thought about that. And that's something, honestly, I want to think about for a few days. Um, my first thought is that there's gotta be a way for you to get your personality out through video, through hunt videos that cause that isn't necessarily really high production, but yet doesn't look am- totally amateurish. Did, There's got to be make a way sense. Do it doesn't. Yeah, does that make what you're yeah. saying makes sense? But the value of allowing your audience, and maybe they can just do it straight through the podcast, but the value of allowing your audience to form that pseudo relationship with you in a way where you're, you're putting out quality stuff, but not necessarily the high production stuff. There's got to be a middle ground in and, there. And that, like that I can tell you when I, when I talk to other people that are in the business, same exact concerns I have. When you look at this, like, well, this is a cell phone video. We can't put out a cell phone video. YouTube is such a different animal though, Bobby. It's I know, like, but it, man, I just, I would die if I posted a cell phone pic on Instagram. It wasn't edited. It's right. just you just can't I, handle it. Right. I just can't do it. Yeah. I, I have uh, friends who are really, really good at like high um resolution B roll and mm-hmm. they have stopped putting those in their waterfowl videos because I, they don't yield return. Do. I know. They don't what people want on YouTube is they want you. 
I, I know. And there's I got there. Ha- I'm going to think about no we're gonna have to come back to, to this conversation because there's got to be a way. Well, have you? No one knows how to do that as a brand. So do you That's follow? Um, no one does it. Do you know who Joel Strickland is? I do. That guy has got a very interesting channel. Like right. I would say he is a great YouTube guy. Yes, and he he's a personal friend of mine, and actually he. You're talking about the guy that did the shot string videos, right? Yeah. Oh man, we phenomenal. Can talking about that. Yeah, phenomenal. So yes. he he's a personal friend of mine. I met him through YouTube. He reached out to me, and now we become personal friends. Dude, that guy's and not shooting cheap video. No, he's not. And he actually, <laughs> if you knew what he, how much he spent to rent that camera for that slow mo, yeah, he, yeah. Right. he's not. He's, he's not, money. and he is a professional videographer that's what he does yeah. he's been putting out shows on back to the outdoor channel so he's been doing it forever and ever and ever so but if you take that style he's doing that's not about but he does spend hours and hours and hours i don't know i don't know let's let's move on to something else because I, I i'm telling you, right. I, need, I need time to think about that i want to come back and have a conversation with you because that's all right that's something i need a few days to think about well, okay one more thing on this to be honest <laughs> it's one of the reasons why i stopped shooting video Mm-hmm. Because one affordable cameras like my the camera that I shoot photos with I shoot with the Z6 the video on that camera is phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, it shoots 4K phenomenal but man these kids they can take a simple DSLR that's two grand with lenses and they can shoot and edit but they will spend two months editing that video I can't do that yeah I got other stuff I got to do so you look at it you're like well I can't post this quality, and then the high school kid posts this quality. Right. You, I, you just can't. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why you feel seen like a it, lot of it diminishes it diminishes people's perception of your brand. Is is your feeling? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That so. that's interesting. All right. One one more. We've hit one more thing. I want to talk. Give you my overall philosophy about film on public, and I want you to tell me tell me what you think about it. This is the way that I, when I really started thinking about whether I should personally not film on public. Now for me, it was just, what is the consequence going to be? What's the benefit? What's the consequence of me showing my favorite hunting spots on video? And one thing I pride myself on as far as my success as a public land hunter, cause I'm a, I'm a weekend hunter cause I have to be. And for being a weekend hunter, I'm extremely successful. I'm not the world's best hunter, but I mean, I, on a Saturday I've got to go. And that right. means I don't have a lot of scouting time. So what I have to do is I have to intimately know the areas that I hunt. I've got to know what's growing, where it's growing. I'll start scouting off season. I'll, so, and I watch water levels religiously and I take notes on water levels. So if we get a little rain, lake comes up six inches. Now I, I will, I will be able to tell you what that has done to the lake, where the sure. water is, because I have mm-hmm. to have that detailed knowledge. If I'm going to just jump to someplace on a Saturday. Right. And so I'm really, really good at knowing areas like the back of my hand and I'll put out whatever effort I have to, to get to those areas and I'll beat people to them. So showing these spots that, that I hunt is something some, that, that can be difficult for me. But my thought is this, I, I hunt about in any given year, 20 different places. Now on a complex, I might call there's seven places on a complex. So if sure. I'm on, you know, seven marshes, but so I bounce yeah. around, I'm not at the same place all the time. There's right. some places I like better than others. And so I, I really try hard to make sure that the only people that watch my video that know where I'm at have people that have been to that spot before. Okay. And, and even 
even if they've been there, it's still harder to identify a spot off a video than you think it is. Even, even if you've been there, but the only people that watch my videos that know the spot are people that have, that have been there. So they already have knowledge of it. Now, might that direct them to go to that spot a little more often? That's certainly possible. They say, Oh, I saw they're tearing them up there. So maybe the next week they're out there, but I'm not bringing more people to the complexes, but I may be shifting around the traffic at the complexes a little bit. And in my mind, that's not enough of a negative for me to be like, well, I ethically can't do this because I feel like I'm just bumping, bumping people around more than I'm bringing people. Right. What, are, what are your thoughts on and if negative or positive? If you disagree, tell me, what are your thoughts on that? So so the difference between the difference between what what I would be doing there and what you were doing there are different because I'm going to live there seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's an inherent amount of attraction that involve if you if you do something in waterfowl and you are somewhere for a while it just attracts a certain amount of people um so you doing that on the weekends it probably doesn't hurt very much um I don't know. I would have to really think about it to say whether I think that's good or I think that's bad. Because um, in that, you also have to factor. You're not I believe particularly that arguing with. We do a different thing, though, because. Right. No, I'm, I'm not. Selling, I'm not arguing with you yeah. and your thoughts. I'm I like, I, no, I'm just I, going. I get people in the area locally that contact me that are very angry and I get yeah. it on the forums and I get there's a certain number of people that feel like I am part of the problem. I can see that. And, I can see that side of it. Right. I, I, but, and I'm still trying to work it through in my mind about it. Um, but I've, I've done this long enough. I've been doing eight years and I can tell you the places that I hunt, I don't see maybe a little bit more traffic, but not much. So I don't right. see it. But then people say, well, I know for a fact I've out of state hunters come in and I ask him and they're mentioning your name and you're being in people in from out of state. And I'm like, is that necessarily a horrible thing? It, I, I don't know. It's, I can't quite put my mind around the whole thing. Well, we should probably get to these new Kansas rules. And, and so that, this would it. involve that. And I would have a different take on the out-of-staters than just YouTubers. All right. So let's let's transition into that. I think some of these topics we need to follow up podcast after both you and I have had a chance <laughs> to think about it. That's what I said. That, that was a big list. This is a lot. I know yeah. it is. And I'm glad that you're willing to just spend time because I'm enjoying, I'm having a blast. We are going to end this episode right here. This conversation with Bobby honestly went on for three and a half hours. One of the most enjoyable conversations that I have had for a long, long time. So I've decided to break this into two separate episodes. So the next episode will be conversation with Bobby Hayes part two. So we're going to end this here. You have listened to another episode of the North American Waterfowler podcast. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.